Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 15. Christ in the last verse of the previous chapter, 14, has dismissed the meeting between him and his 11 remaining disciples. And so they're leaving the upper room. But his teaching and his discourse to them and for them, and then finally through them for us, continues. And so we've come then to this chapter 15. The vine dresser, the vine, and the branches. The disciples at this point are still troubled over all that Christ has said to them. He's going away. He's going to the Father. They can't come. He's going to send the Spirit. He won't stay with them, but the Spirit will come, and He is the Spirit, and it is His Spirit. And as surely as the Spirit comes, it is the Father in Him, and He's in the Father. And they come, and the Spirit's there, and it's as though the believer, when that happens, is in possession as the temple of the Lord, in possession of the very Godhead. Magnificent, tremendous promises that cannot be fully understood or appreciated by the disciples until the day of Pentecost and afterward. That's why Christ previously told them, he said, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you will understand and you will believe. Such questions in their minds as how can he live in us? How, how can we have peace? He says, my peace I, live with, I leave with you. How can we have peace when he's just told us he's going away and previously has told us that he's going to die this horrible death? How can we have this peace? Struggling with all of these questions. And just a couple of hours earlier, something unthinkable, unimaginable to the disciples had happened. One of their own has shown himself to be a traitor. Christ knew this from the beginning. And so having dismissed, the Bible says that, that the devil, that Satan came into Judas. And when Satan came into Judas, Christ at the table dismissed Judas and thus dismissed Satan from the meeting. What you do, do quickly. And he dismissed him. And then the deeper teaching for the 11, which continues here as they make their way out of this upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. So with all of that in mind, let's look at what Christ continues to tell his disciples. I am the true vine. There's several I am's in John's gospel. John in chapter one, you hopefully will remember. 
begins by teaching us that Christ is God. The same was in the beginning with God. He is the creator. He's, he's the consummator. He's all things. All things are in him. So this is the next in the line of the I am's. I am the true vine. Now let's think, let's take this in its setting and in its context. Alephane, I have it highlighted up there in the Greek text. True, that which is real. It is real and it cannot be hidden. Real as opposed to false. That which is true and real. Not counterfeit. The real thing. I am the true vine. Now what did his disciples know about this? It's easy to see. In Isaiah chapter 5 and again in Psalm 80. Israel was referred to as the vine. God referenced him as the one who would oversee this vine. And Isaiah, an allusion to the truth that Israel had become non-fruit bearing. Something that God would have to attend to. The disciples would have known that the vine was, was a, a, an illustration, a metaphor. It was, it was Israel in the Old Testament. Not just that. Anyone who went into the temple saw carved into the walls of the temple and overlaid with gold a vine, a grapevine with grapes on it. An obvious reference to what God said to Israel in, in Isaiah 5, you are the vine. And of course, they were holding on to the promise that God said, I will care for you and I'll take care of you. But the truth of the vine is found in the production of fruit. So they would have known when Christ references a vine, number one, he would be referencing Israel. The leaders of Israel in that day in Jerusalem, the leaders of Judaism, were the ones who were seeking the life of Christ. It's about to happen just wee hours away from where they are here. As they walk away from the upper room, they make their way through Jerusalem toward Gethsemane, an area that was replete with vineyards. It was the Passover season, so the moon would have been full and they would have easily seen the many vineyards that were there. The vineyard inscribed, carved into the entrance to the temple, the vineyards all along the way as they walked to Gethsemane. Jesus, against all of that, would say, I am the true vine. For three years, his teaching had been to tell the people 
that unlike the teaching of Judaism, which had been perverted to make people think that they could save themselves by obedience to the law, was actually contrarywise not something that they could do. You can't save yourself. You need a savior. You need an atonement. You need a substitute to die for you, to take away your guilt and your sin. This was the great teaching of the Christ that uh, he, would, he would make them understand that the Old Testament teaches and presents the Messiah in two comings, the first coming and the second coming. And in the first coming, he would be the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah. Uh, you can find it in 9 through 12. That the Messiah would be pierced, he would bleed. It would please God to send him, this suffering servant, to take upon bruising and iniquity and, and shame in behalf of others. So it was a, a, a tremendous and important teaching, but they had bypassed that because it just wasn't cool in their day to think of Messiah as being subjected to cruelty and death. Even Daniel spoke of how the first 69 sevens would come to a conclusion with the death of the Messiah, whom Daniel said would receive nothing. In other words, he would not come into his kingdom on planet earth just then. So all of this would have been the foundation of what Christ was teaching and then he would present himself and he even would explain that he was the Messiah and he would tell his disciples that he is God in the flesh. His disciples were clinging on to everything, but they're greatly disturbed. Christ now places himself in the place of Israel. Israel is not the true vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. That word, gardener, husbandman, however it may be translated, the word up here is Georgos, earth keeper. So the job of the vine dresser is to attend to the vine and see that it bears fruit. This is what Christ says is the labor of the Father. Go way back, and we've talked about this quite a bit, but we have to go back to the eternal covenant that the Father made with the Son. Jesus alluded to it in John 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all that the Father gives to me of all of them, I will in no wise cast any of them out. They are secure. They are mine forever. They were given to me by the Father in eternity past. It becomes a settled fact in time and space. And whatever it takes, I will care for them because my Father gave them to me. So it is the labor of the Father to make sure that the vine has 
on it fruit. That's what Christ says here. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me not bearing fruit, he raises it away. It's a, it's an, uh, I, you have to, okay, bear with me, would you please? I have a couple of words here highlighted in black. I don't have them underlined, but the first one is up here on the second line toward the end. Ari. The next one is in close to the middle of the next line. Kathari. Now, can you see the similarity in the Greek? You would have to be in the midst of a conversation with these words to understand the play on words that are here. Ari, kathari, okay? One is he lifts up away, raises it away, and the other one is he prunes or cleanses. Catharsis, we get the word that from there. There's a tremendous point that is made to the 11 that carries through, of course, to the church by the teaching of the apostles preserved here as we see in John's gospel. And we're studying it. Every branch in me not bearing fruit, he raises it away. One word and then another word to prune, similar to that word, but not exactly the same word. Prunes it or cleanses it. Everyone bearing fruit, he, the father, prunes it or cleanses it that it may bear more fruit. I studied this passage not just for now, but the other two times that in my life that I've preached through John's gospel. It, uh, it, is, a, it is a wonderful and, and challenging passage that, uh, that deserves the deepest study. I've never had a vineyard. Maybe you have, I don't know. I've never had a vineyard. So I had to read up on vineyards. I had to study everything that I could find and discover regarding vineyards, grapes. There are different kinds of grapes. I guess I knew that from going to the grocery store. And they can taste a little different. But all that I read about growing a vineyard and grapevines brought me into discussions where I found one common thing among, I don't care where in the world you're gra- growing the grapevines, there is this common thing that a vine dresser has to deal with and it's called a sucker shoot. A sucker shoot. Now that sounds like <laughs> you know, that sounds like going somewhere where there's a bunch of idiots and just shooting them, doesn't it? A sucker shoot. Well, of course that's not what that means, and I don't advocate that. Every idiot needs to be saved. I don't care who they are. 
But it is not S-U-C-K-E-R, it's S-U-C-C-O-R, or O-U-R, according to where you want the British or the English, the U.S. version. And it has huge leaves. And those leaves can get in the way of other leaves that need this sunlight. And these vines come up out of the earth, earth keeper. And coming up out of the earth, they attach themselves to the vine. Their leaves begin to sap strength from the other leaves that are the leaves of the grape vine. And attaching themselves to the vine, they begin to sucker on the sap and the juice that the vine needs to grow and to produce fruit. So what does the vine dresser do? Well, clearly, by the appearance of the large leaf, by the fact that it's attached, not as a branch, but has attached something into the vine to rob nutrients out of the vine, it's very obvious to an experienced vine dresser what's not going to bear fruit, what doesn't belong there, what is not a part of the vine. So what does he do? He lifts it up and has to be careful. He doesn't want to damage the vine and he doesn't want to rip good branches. So the thing that has attached itself into the vine, the father, none less than the father himself, lifts it up. This is his labor. This is his work. This is the work of the father. The father says to that sucker shoot, uh-uh, you're not one of us. And he lifts it up. And then he pulls it off of the vine and then out of the earth, the earth keeper. And pulls it out of the earth. And he throws it away. And it dries up. So the vine dresser is careful in leaving the vine to find those things that are attached into the vine that don't belong there and are trying to steal from the vine. And he lifts it up carefully and takes it away. He puts it in a pile that will be burned later on. That leaves the real branches that are part of the vine. And everyone bearing fruit, he prunes it or cleanses it that it may bear more fruit. Another thing that I learned about vine vineyards, the vine dresser in the second season severely prunes the branches the ones that are real, that are attached. And it is, the, it, is a, it is a harsh task and it is something that has to be done. And one man I was reading from said that if you didn't know what was happening, you would think that this guy was crazy, cutting back like he was, pruning like he was, but if you waited till the third season, 
you would see why the tremendous growth of fruit that comes. Not only was Israel an untrue vine, but just, just minutes or a couple of hours earlier, they had watched Jesus dismiss Satan who had taken over one of the 12, Judas. Remember we read back where Christ said in another passage, he said, I have chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil. It is by the eternal purpose of God. And so now, and we've also studied how Judas was the keeper of the purse and the Bible told us that he was a thief. So here is a guy trying to attach himself to Christ, but has never left his attachment of the false vine because he sold Jesus out to the leaders of Judaism. He never bore fruit. And it was the father who lifted him up away from the true vine and the branches and tore him up out of the earth and has cast him away that he might be burned. All of this fresh on the minds of the disciples. He prunes it, he cleanses it, the branch that bears fruit, and he does so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. Okay, now there's, a, there's that word, all right? You're already clean. Katharoi. Kathari. Katharoi. Clean. Same, same word. You are already clean by reason of the word that I have spoken to you. All right, word is in red over here. Logon, which comes from logos. Logon. It's the, the neuter. It's logon. The word. The word. The word. The word. Christ is the word. It's the blessed and holy word of God. We can go back and see all that Christ has spoken to them. We've been studying it for a long time. What is it that has caused the 11 to be part of Christ vitally and not the other one, Judas, and not so many others who call themselves disciples that have left him? It is because they have been cleansed by the word of Christ, pruned. Now, if you think back on the lives of the 11, Let's just take Peter, for example. He's, he's left his fishing business. He leaves his family behind for extensive periods of time that he might travel with Jesus and learn the teachings of Christ as a disciple. He's just one in point. What did Matthew? Matthew forsook a, a very lucrative living as a tax gatherer he was despised, but, you know, if you're richer than everybody else in his world, what would he care, right? 
He left all of that behind. And we could go on with the others as well. They have been cleansed. They have already had from their lives things pruned that were not pertinent to being a disciple of Christ. Now, all of us here who are in Christ, and especially those of us who have lived longer and we've been longer in Christ than others, have witnessed through the years. I have. I can't believe it would be any different for you, those who are in Christ. You have witnessed how things that have been so important have been pruned away because they interfered with fruit bearing. Sometimes it was painful. Sometimes it caused suffering, I'll tell you. But it came by the Father, the Father, that I might bear more fruit. So, in the lives of Christians in this present life, we have suffering and troubles. We have victories and happiness and joy. But when we are cleansed by the word, we come across things. And let me tell you this. The word will always teach you more every time you read through it. You didn't catch it the first time, but you caught it this time because you weren't ready the first time or the second time or the third time. And you come face to face with something in life that stands in your way of being the kind of fruit bearing Christian that you ought to be. And now in humility and with confession and repentance, you admit to the Lord that you have just discovered something in your life that is inappropriate, that is in the way, that shouldn't be there. And now you begin to walk away from it. God the Father has pruned it from your life. This is a process in my, in my book. This is a process that never stops all the way through life. Christ says to his disciples, the word that I have spoken to you has already cleansed you. You're already clean. Abide in me. Now, in verse 4, about the middle of it. Manate, abide. That's in the imperative. In other words, it's a command. It isn't a suggestion. It's a command. It's an imperative in the text. Abide in me. Now that's an active. It's in the active. Which means that this is what we do. We're drawn to do this. Is, this is a focus in life for us. And I in you. Now that's in the passive. We can't force this, but Christ does it for us. And we enjoy the effects. That thus it's in the passive when it talks what he does for us. But then there's this imperative that we have responsibilities as Christians. As the branch is not able to bear fruit of itself. What kind of branch can bear fruit without the vine? Well, it can't happen. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you if you abide not in me. 
What's, what's the big point? The big point is bearing fruit. If you are a born-again, spirit-baptized, Bible-believing Christian, according to Ephesians, Christ works a work in you, and those works were in you when God called you to Christ. And they will make, them, they will make their way out. And here's the beauty of the whole thing. In Christ, Christ does these things and these, this fruit bearing happens most of the time without us even realizing that we're bearing fruit. It is the force and power of the salvation of God in grace that has worked itself through us in this life. It is not, it's not, we're not bearing the fruit. He is bearing the fruit. And the fruit is beautiful and it increases because the Father is working us. This is His labor for you and for me. What a beautiful thought. I have been obedient to the Scripture and I have forsaken something that I have discovered is in the way. And God has convicted me of it. And all I can think about is the Father. The Father is working on me. That's, that's what Christ says to the eleven. Abide in me as a command. So to abide in him means that we seek to understand his word. We study it. We receive teaching in it. We study it. We depend upon the Holy Spirit to unveil it and the truth of it in our lives and apply it to our lives. And we continue to go and grow as Christians. And somehow fruit is being produced. And the day probably will come when you repose in death. And those who are thinking back on your life cannot help but to think of the ways that you have helped others. That you have served Christ. And those thoughts were never yours in your lifetime. You were just living the Christian life. Abiding in Christ. Now, that, that word abide is the verb form of the word in John 14 where the noun form is dwelling places. King James translates it mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. In my father's house are many abiding places, dwelling places. It's an intimate word. It speaks of residence. It speaks of the home of the family. And Christ has already told us that he's prepared a place for us and that we will be with him. It is the intimate household that the father has prepared for the son and that the son gives to the bride. And so we abide with him in the father's house. This is the verb form of that. That was the noun form. Here's the verb form. Abide in me. We will live with him. Intimately. Love for him and for each other. So. In this life. 
we come to realize that Christ has promised to work through us and in us. And we thank God for whatever he may do in our lives. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one abiding in me, that's that verb form again, menon, as menoi, that was the mansions, that was the noun form. The one abiding in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are able to do nothing. Our great position in life, our great call in life, the essence of life for believers is to learn more and more of Christ in his word, the commands of Christ, the words of Christ, that we may grow in Christ likeness that we may continue to grow in the image of the Son of the Father, the Father's Son. And it is the call of each of us at Shiloh, for example. Through our obedience to believe that God will bear fruit because God is at work in, those, in that labor. Therein is the proof but we are in the vine, the presence of the Lord. For apart from me, you are able to do nothing. If anyone abides not in me, he is thrown like the branch. Okay, so here's the, here's the comparison to verse 2. The sucker root, the shoot, the sucker shoot. If you don't abide in me, you don't have fruit. Because if you're in me, you will have fruit. And the Father's work is to prune you so that you will bear more fruit as you go through life. But if there is no fruit, then this sucker sheep, this thing, is not really in me. And he's thrown like the branch that's dried up. They gather them and cast them into the fire. And it is burned. This is the work of the Father. This is, a, this is a sobering reality and a sobering thought. And it should be for all of us who are in Christ. Let me think, which is rare for me. I'm looking back to 1976. I've baptized maybe 2,000 or more. <laughs> but you know what? I'm just thinking here now. The work of the church didn't swell up like that. I can't judge people. You know the old saying, I can be a fruit inspector, but what, what, what fruits are you going to? We don't even know how to judge the fruit. That's, that's not our work. We, we depend on the promise that the Father will produce fruit. He will see to it that we 
produce fruit. That's his job in our lives. And as a pastor, and I, I have to try to shake my head and run from these thoughts because I become too judgmental, but I ask, you know, how many of these people were sucker shoots? I don't know. It's troubling to me. But there is a reality in the New Testament that is this. Not everybody who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's a sobering thought. On my face before God, studying his word, oh God, I don't know what the fruit can be or will be, but please make it happen in my life. Show me in your word where I need to grow, where my life needs pruning. Help me. And so we walk humbly with God all of our lives. Man, it pains me to think of branches that in the final analysis bore no fruit and were cast away into the fire. It's a deep and sobering thought and it is a truth that comes from Christ himself at his most passionate time in teaching his disciples. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Okay, now I have words. It's a different, it's not logos. You see that? It's It's a different word. It means, it means the fulfillment of, of promises. That's what that word means. It's a different word. And my promises to be fulfilled will be fulfilled and they abide in you. Okay, so he's talking about here, if you abide, then you're going to bear fruit. And he gives four examples of fruits here. Or four examples of fruit. The first one is this. Ask whatever you wish and it will come to pass to you. You will have an active and successful prayer life. I keep a prayer diary. Most of the time, God says no. I thank God for anything he says. And finally, after about 15 years, that prayer for a Lamborghini just gets marked off the list. You will have an active prayer life and you will watch God at work. It will come to pass in you what your desires are. Now these desires have to do with bearing fruit. The second fruit is here. In this my father is glorified that you should bear much fruit and you shall thus prove to be my, my disciples. The second fruit that Christ mentions is that you will become an effective witness for Christ. Just by the way that you live, by your concerns for your family and your friends, by the people with whom you associate, by, by the testimony that you bear, not just in your life, but in the ways that you might testify to others. This is the second fruit that Christ mentions. The Father is glorified 
fruit is born in our lives. And I have to tell you, we, don't, we, we won't be able to be the ones who will say, man, look at me, I'm bearing fruit. You never know. I mean, it's just not the kind of thing the Father knows. And thus the Father is glorified. We can't know, but we can't glorify ourselves. How can we take any credit for anything that happens like that? We can't. But it proves that we're his disciples. The third fruit he mentions is love. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. There's another imperative. The love of Christ. Christ said they will know that you're my disciples by how you love the brethren. The first stage and the most important stage of love is for Christ. Right after that is to love the brethren, to love the family. Boy, I tell you, you can't claim to be full of God's love if you hate your brother. It isn't there. That's, that's the opposite of fruit. We are a family in Christ. It is an intimate relationship, a bond that we share together in Christ. The third fruit is the love that we have to abide in his love. If you keep, now there's that word again. Today's the thing. That word means to guard or protect. Keep, guard, protect. It's something special. And it won't be toyed with. I'll guard it. If you guard, keep, protect my commandments, you will abide in my love. How do we know that we're abiding in the love of Christ? Because we fiercely protect and hold dear the word of God. That's what he's saying. We're not flippant about the word of God. If there's something we don't understand, we study it more until the Holy Spirit sees fit to make us understand it. As I have kept the commandments of my Father and I abide in His love. Fourth fruit that He mentions. I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy. To enjoy the Christian life. To live a life of joy because of what God in Christ has done for us. Into the ages of the ages, since forever, what he has done for us. To enjoy being with brothers and sisters in Christ. To enjoy coming together with brothers and sisters in Christ that we might present ourselves before the Lord in a time of worship and offer it up as an offering like today. That he might have joy in us. In Galatians, there are nine fruits of the Spirit. The last six rest on the first three, which are love, joy, and peace. And all three of those have been addressed. We saw earlier, Christ said, I'll give you my peace. Peace I leave with you, I give to you. 
Then we've seen how already we've seen earlier about his love for us and our love in him and the love we have for the father and so forth. And then the joy that we have in Christ. Fruits of the spirit. If we have love, joy and peace, the other six will be manifest in our lives. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the son of God and he came into this world to save sinners. In just a moment, we'll be dismissed in prayer from this meeting room. But if you would come to Christ, if God is calling you to Christ, as you exit this room, deacons and wives will be just across the hall. As you, you'll see them standing in the doorways, ready to pray with you. And to talk with you about the joy of salvation. Maybe you're already saved and God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. That you may be actively involved in whatever we try to do for Christ. We'll take care of all of the details if that's what God wants in your life. As well, you stop in there and tell the deacons and the wives what's on your heart. They'll assist you in that as well. For now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's all stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer.